Thanks for joining us as a listener to our Hidden Kingdom podcast. With each episode, I'll be talking to speakers, poets, songwriters, artists, entrepreneurs, and friends I've made down through the years as a worship leader, hearing their stories and how they communicate in their various spheres of influence. These are conversations to inspire us to think more deeply and more imaginatively about how we use our own gifting to make known facets of the hidden kingdom to the modern world. Words have always had a particular fascination for me. People who can craft, mould and shape them such as poets and storytellers command my respect and admiration. Malcolm Geit is one of these people. As a poet, priest and musician, he is currently chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge, as well as finding time to lecture extensively across the UK and North America. He's written a number of books of poetry and writes a weekly column for the Church Times here in the UK. It was a great delight to chat with him for this podcast. I'm sure you will enjoy it. We start with Malcolm reading one of his signature poems, The Singing Bowl. Singing Bowl. Begin the song exactly where you are. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in the earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. Start with the very breath you breathe in now this moment's pulse, this rhythm in your blood, and listen to it, ringing soft and low. Stay with the music, words will come in time. Slow down your breathing, keep it deep and slow. Become an open singing bowl, whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. And when the heart is full of quietness, begin the song exactly where you are. My goodness, that is just wonderful. Actually, that's the first poem that I ever uh, heard you, 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 you speak oh, really? out, uh, Malcolm. And, uh, I remember I, that. It, it's always had an impact on me because, um, I, I mean, am I responding right when I hear poetry? It's like... There's a few phrases that I pick out, and I use my imagination to kind of... Oh, absolutely. I think the poetry is... Uh, I think if you, if you hear a poem or you read a poem and you think, wow, that's good, then take heart, because mm. it means you're at least as good as poet as a poet as that poem was for you. Because <laughs> all the poem is is a few... Star- it's like a starter kit. It's like one yes. of those grow bags. You, you know, there's the seeds yes. in it. Yeah. In the end, it's the soil of your imagination that is going to give, give life and growth to that poem. And the phrase is also... I mean, there's they, got to be good. There's got to be mm. some seeds in the starter kit. Mm. I mean, I once interviewed the great, great poet Seamus Heaney. Oh, my. Know, but I was just... Oh, I was blown away. Yes, I'm sure. It was so kind, like, and he had, like, no side to him. Anyway... Yes. He was saying, well, maybe nowadays people don't even memorise poems anymore. But he was saying, like, a poem isn't a poem when you're just looking at it on the page or just reading it for the first time. He said, a poem is a poem when a phrase from the poem that you didn't even know you knew or remembered suddenly comes into your mind at some other situation in life. Mm. We're not thinking about poetry. Mm. But the phrase of the poem totally clarifies something for you. Mm. And then he concluded it, and this is his phrase. He said, I hope poetry offers phrases that feed the soul. Mm, mm. And I think it does. And I think that's comforting because sometimes it's only a phrase from a poem we remember. But that phrase may be all we needed. I mean, th- th- that poem there just opens it out, begin from exactly, begin where, you exactly where you are. And where we are uh, this afternoon, we're at King's Cross, <laughs> yeah. busy, busy thoroughfare. Well, yeah. Very happy to be at King's, uh, uh, King's Cross here. Church, which is a yeah. growing, well, vibrant I mean, uh, church. Which I mean, King's Cross <laughs> and Church. Probably the three most significant words, you know, yes. we need to bring together. Absolutely. You know? And yet it's, you know, here it is, we're in the midst of yeah. the heaven, you know, in the world of which we're made. I mean, poetry for a lot of Christians has been sort of sidelined. Yeah. Part of the problem of having lost poetry mm. for a while, I think it's coming back, mm. is that we've therefore, with poetry, we've lost a way of reading. Mm. Poetry, some people say poetry is language slowed down, but it's a bit more than slowed down. In poetry, of course, you taste and savour the words. Yes. But you know, 
when you're reading a poem that it's the poem is not like the ticker tape that's running along the bottom of the TV screen with the latest news headlines. Mm, mm. It's not a literal one level, it's not a detailed account of what you would have seen if you'd been stood there with a camcorder. <laughs> you know, it's about what those p images and pictures mean deep within you, mm. you know. Mm. Now actually, a lot of the Bible is like that as well. Mm -hmm. And um, in order to get to it, you need your imagination. You know, C.S. Lewis, who thought about these things a lot, once said in a, in a late essay, he said, he's talking about the way God has given us both reason and imagination mm. in order to feel our way towards his truth and open our hearts to mm. it. And he said, actually, reason is the, is the natural organ of truth. You can work out logically what mm. is the case. But, he said, imagination is the organ of meaning. Mm. It's all very well to have the facts. You can even have the facts of your salvation and the facts of what Jesus yes. has done for you on the cross. But until you make that story your story, mm. until you imaginatively yeah. engage with it, it's not. It's going to be, okay, it was done for you, but has it been done in you? Mm. And mm. the in you part is where you need your poetry and your imagination. Mm. Oh, say. That's right, very good. I mean, one of the great things about the Christian church is it brings together people from very, very different backgrounds. Yeah. And, you know, there's me, my charismatic sort of background that yeah. I come from. Yeah. Uh, you're from another wing of the church, yeah. a poet priest. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I think it's great that we can learn from each other and, and embrace. Uh, yeah. Oh, totally. Approaches. And I was, you know, I, I've been very glad to, to, to have you know, met the people that I have met from the charismatic movement and I've seen that as mm. bearing great fruit for the church. Not least because I think it's set free the imagination. I think sometimes people have been very hidebound in a sort of quite mm. legalistic mm. kind of slightly abstracted way mm. of, of seeing things, have yes. been able to... I mean, there's a talk about poets and poets giving you perhaps a word for the church. There's a great Scottish mystical poet of the mid-20th century, a guy called Edmund Muir, who... Um, was brought up in a kind of fairly straight down the line, no pictures, no images, Calvinist, you know, yeah, Scots, yeah, 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 yeah. Presbyterian thing. And he felt that wasn't touching either on his inner heart or for that matter on the real sorrows of the people and the struggles. And he left the church and he became a member of the Communist Party for a while and was trying to, you know, have a you know, purely economic salvation. And then he realised that didn't work, you know. Mm, mm. That man is not an economic animal, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we're something more than that. So he, happily, he came back to the faith. But he was looking back, back on, if you like, on the experience of bad church. Like, why didn't it work for him? And he's got an amazing... He actually realised that abstract, wordy, unimaginative theology is a kind of refusal of God's incarnation of the word made flesh. And this is what he says in the poem. I mean, the poem starts by saying, how could our race betray and the incarnate one unmake who mm. chose this form and fashion for our sake? Mm. And then he talks, this is the verse about bad church. Maybe you recognize it. He says this, he says, the word made flesh is here made word again. The word made word in flourish and arrogant crook. See there, King Calvin with his iron pen. And God, three angry letters in a book. Yes. For here, the mystery mm. is impaled and bent mm. into an ideological argument. And then the next verse starts, there's better gospel in man's natural tongue. Perfect. Now, I think he's onto something. Yes. There. I'm not saying you shouldn't have, you know, theology, and I'm not saying it doesn't yeah, need yeah. something to be abstract. But that's got to be, you know, these these bones have got to be clothed with flesh and the, filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, you know, the inner knowing. Shall these yeah. bones live? Yes, know? that's right. Yes. And that's God's gift. But one of the ways in which God gives that gift is by working through our imagination. Yes. And that's why Jesus, in his teaching, Jesus is a poet. I mean, Jesus is Absolutely. Consider the lilies. When he's Consider asked the lilies question. in the yeah. field. You know, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yeah. yeah. In fact, um, I had a bit of a sort of aha moment when having, you know, loved poetry and wanted to be a poet and kind of before I came back to the Christian faith in a more mm. thorough way as an undergraduate, you know, mm. in a sense, poetry was my religion. Now, mm. it's you take even the best secondary thing and try and make it the first thing, it withers on you, you know. Mm. 
put second things second and first things first, and then you get the, the second yeah, things yeah. thrown in, as yeah. C.S. Lewis says. Yeah. So I was a bit in danger of making religion of it, but luckily, you know, God found me and I, I came to find my faith in him. Mm. And then, of course, poetry flourished. Mm. And I suddenly, it was a real kind of moment of insight, I started to write a book in which I was trying to get my faith and my poetry, you know, in a line to, to see what the, how they work together. Yeah. Wrote a book called Faith, Hope and Poetry. And um, I, I went back to a famous passage from Shakespeare that I knew by heart, which I always used to think was just about poetry. And I thought it was just about the best thing that had ever been written about poetry. Mm. So it's a famous passage, it says, um, the poet's eye in fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, and as imagination bodies forth the form of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes yes. and gives to airy nothing a local habitation. That's wonderful, yeah. Name. Great Good poetry. Shape. So I yes. thought, Good on you, Shakespeare. Thanks for telling us how you do it. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. But that imagination bodying forth and that glance from heaven to earth and earth to heaven and the idea that it's something you can't quite put your finger on or say, but yeah. the poetry gives it a name yeah. and actually gives it a habitation so you can keep going back to that place yeah. and walk through the front doors of the poem and it's full of these living realities yes, that yes. come to visit. Absolutely. So I thought, great. Yeah. But it was only when I was looking at that passage again, this time as a believing Christian, mm -hmm. I thought, it's funny, you know, this reminds me of something. What does this remind me of? And suddenly I realised, it's the whole opening of John's Gospel. It's, you know, you think in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with mm. God, and the Word was God, and the same was with God. And the, you know, it's great, you know, it's mm. great theology, but you can't see it, I can't no. see it. You know, it's just going along, around in these beautiful ethereal yes. circles. And then suddenly you get to verse 14, the Word was made flesh, flesh. Exactly. and dwelt among us. Yeah. Yeah, and then we beheld his glory, beheld glory, his glory is, you know, yes. full of grace. Yeah. And then, then when, when, they, when the disciples finally meet up with Jesus, they go like, oh, master, where are you saying, staying? Yeah. Shakespeare might have known it in the Latin, eh? magister ubi habitat, where's your habitation, right? And I suddenly thought, do you know, I think Shakespeare's just got gently riffing on John. He's just going, look, the reason why we poets have this thing that we've got to somehow connect heaven and earth, the mm. invisible and the visible, mm. the, the apprehended and the comprehended. And that the way to do that is by bodying it forth, incarnating it, giving a name and a habitation. Mm. I think she's saying, you know why we do that? Because we're made in the image of a God. Who does exactly. That. God does yes, that. That's, that's what right. he does. Makes that's what underpins. And of course, if you actually look towards the end of that first chapter, you realise this heaven, earth, earth, heaven thing is going on because Nathaniel, who's the cynic, you know, oh, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Something. Mm. He sees Jesus. Jesus looks at him, and he gets it, and he says, "You're the Messiah." And Jesus says, "Did you say that because I saw you, you for sitting on the fig tree?" And he says, "This. You will see greater things. Mm -hmm. You will see the heavens opened." And the angels of God ascending and descending upon, and you know, Nathaniel's going, oh, I know this one, Jacob's ladder. <laughs> but yeah. that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, you'll see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's a hidden I am saying. He's going, I am Jacob's ladder. Right. That's what Jacob right. was looking for. Right. You yeah. want to connect heaven and earth. Jesus is your man. You know, mm. he is your ladder. He mm. is the actually. Mm. So that thing about the poet's eye you know, from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, that's all set up. And I'm not saying all poetry is inspired, like John's Gospel, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying, if John's Gospel is true, which I believe it is, then maybe poetry is even possible because God, the, the great poet, has made the poem of Jesus, has bodied it forth and said, yes. everything I am and I mean is there for you. Yeah. And maybe just like in a real poem, You've got to learn it by heart. You've got to love it. You've got to chant it. You've got to turn to that poem when you're in, you're in difficulty and then suddenly it makes sense to you. That is totally true of Jesus. Mm. You can't turn Jesus into a printed text on a page. That's what happens in John 8, isn't it? When they're, when they're looking at the scriptures and saying, oh, can't find you here. Exactly. And he's going, you yes. search the scriptures because in them life, you've got life standing in front of you, mate. Mm. You know? <laughs> mm. So that's, to me, poetry, that's why I say, you know, remain within the world of which you're made. I don't want to fly off into some abstraction. That's right, down God. here in Earth. It's all about incarnation. Tangible incarnation, incarnation. And one of the things that you really sort of are, are known for is, is the sonnet form. Yeah. Now, for people listening, 
yeah. uh, they'll think, what, what is a sonnet form? Can you explain? Okay, well, this is great. So, so the great thing about a sonnet is that you know when you're going to stop before you start. You, know, you mm. can see the end. So a sonnet is 14 lines. It comes right. from it, Italian sonetto, which means little sound or little song. And um, so that's part of the game of the sonnet, right? Whatever you say, you've only got 14 lines to say in it. And yep. you know that and your reader knows that. So you can set up a problem or a difficulty or a puzzle, but you've got to get out of it. You know, you've, <laughs> you've got a limited you've time a limited space. Time. Yeah. And I think of that form, and usually it also has five beats to the line, as it were. You know, the, the I am is the click. it's like, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. You know, mm. shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. Summers, can you hear the rhythm there? Yes, yeah. So there's lots of ways of dividing 14, lots of ways to cut a cake, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Shakespeare famously does it with three fours and a two. So he's got a stanza of four, a stanza of four, a stanza okay. of four, and he's got a couplet, you know. Okay. You can also do it with an eight and a six. Yeah. And um, you can do certain things with a sonnet that you can't do with any other form, which is based on the fact that you know when the end is. And it intensifies what you say. So it's, 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 like it's concise. It's concise. And it's like, if you're trying to make a fire and it's just in the middle of, you know, the wind's blowing. All but if you stick it inside a, a, you know, a fire pit or a, or a furnace or a, you know, a little, you know. Yeah, exactly. Fire, it intensifies the flame, you know. Which is interesting because, you know, a lot of the songs, the early songs that I wrote that people who are listening with it will know, the Abba Father yeah, or the Heaven. Yeah, I love it. So. They're... they're they're, they're contained within a form in the yeah, same exactly, in the same yeah. way, and they become memorable, yeah. uh, and they don't deviate deviate off, off yeah, to exactly. the left or to the right. There's one central core yeah, thing, and one central idea. That's the other thing. You've really got to say something clear in a sonnet. Now you can say, you can say the a, statement A, and you can say on the other hand statement B, and you can bring in a contrast, mm. but you've got to find your way out of it. You've the sonnet is telling you to resolve it, to mm. find some way forward. And, and often you, you use rhyme, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do very much yeah, so. You, yeah. Yeah. I love the sound of, you know, I think, you know, there's a great, there's a great uh, poem about poetry by, by the, the French poet Verlaine, and it's a you know, French musical language, but it, the opening line is de la musique avant tout chose, so music before everything else. Uh -huh. And I believe that. I think it's got to sound right. Mm. And that's why in that poem, The Singing Bowl, I've got the line, stay with the music, mm. words will come in time. That is, yeah, and that's a line that I love. You know. So, um, and as a songwriter for me, yeah. that's it, you see, I start yeah. with, with a feeling, usually I start with a feeling, yeah. and then comes a phrase. Yeah. And sometimes the, the simpler songs are the harder ones to write. Oh, totally, because yeah. Because you, you want to get every Everything's word Everything's got to right, be right. You know. And it mustn't be, it mustn't be just a cliche and it mustn't be, be trite. Mm. You know, you don't want a poem that you, where you read it and you go like, and, you know, like, is that it? You know, uh, you want it to be clear in the sense that somebody gets something, something out of it on the first hearing, yes. the same with the song. Mm. But, you know, you don't want it to be all, it's got to be, have some slow burn. You some, know? some layers to yeah. it. Yeah, I sometimes say, you know, I'm trying to teach poetry classes, I say to them, look, you know, you don't want to go out with a poem that gives you everything on the first date. You, know? <laughs> you want a poem that you can live with for 20 years and it'll still sneak still up be behind rich. you and give a little kiss of meaning that you never even thought of. And say, yeah. Oh, wow, I didn't even see that was there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's got it's, to have lots to offer. It's kind know? of interesting. I mean, you know, we come from different perspectives, uh, different, different backgrounds, and certainly educationally very yeah. different because you are such a, a leading academic and um, speak all over the place all yeah. about C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but I, I know that it's the connection with the heart that yeah. you're really interested in and that's why I love your delivery when you, when you do poems yeah. because you get the words and yeah. the beauty of the words but there's something it's resonates. The heart. You know, I think, you know, there's a, when the great, the great, um, uh, theologian who started in an Anglican and became a Roman Catholic, but he's one of the great Christian teachers of mm. um, the 19th century, Henry Newman. It's just been made a saying, right. Henry Newman. His motto, which is a great motto for a theologian, I only wish a few more academic theologians had this as a motto. Mm. He had Latin motto, of course, but in Latin it's core ad core loquitur. And what that means is heart speaks unto heart. Oh, yeah. 
Only a heart, the only language a heart can hear is the language of another heart. Yes. In, yes. It, yes. in the end. And of course he was thinking, heart speaks unto heart was not only his thing about way th to do theology, but for him it was about the heart of Jesus. Mm. The broken heart of God, broken, broken for love yes. of us. Yeah. Breaking open our hard heart yes. and yeah. speaking to us. Yeah. You know. And deep calls to deep, of deep course. Deep calls, yeah, yeah deep. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. How did you get to where you are now? Were you brought up with a poetic background? Yeah, I was So from the poetry point of view, I mean, I'm lucky in both, lucky in both my parents, but I think I particularly get the poetry from my mother, right. who, thanks be to God, is still with us. I, I was just up in Scotland helping her celebrate her 101st birthday. This that is quite something. That is pretty good, yeah. you know, and she can still quote poetry at 101. And know. is she Scottish then? Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm half Scots. Um, right. I'm half Scots and half Yorkshire, you know, although I don't sound like either, but that's no. because I was brought up all over the place. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, so now my mother had a huge fund of poetry um, and just, I have inherited this from her, that she, can, she needs a poem, she can just quote it, it's just all there. Mm. She likes a line, she remembers it. So when I was little, you know, she would cite poetry to me and she didn't like sit me down in a hard chair and say, now this is poetry, it's good for you, sit up straight. She would just do it. Yeah. And like, because we lived in Africa and we were coming back to England every year, and my mum wouldn't fly, so we used to do it by sea. Used to have a lot of time at sea, you know. And, um, you know, we'd stand, I used to love the exciting moment when the boat left and you'd see the wake of the boat, the, the, the water showing out and the white waves. And, you know, I would say, oh, look at the lovely wake. And my mum would go, the fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. You know, and I, I, like, I could tell that was something special. Yeah. But it's also a kid could understand that. It's a bit of the rhyme of the ancient yes. mariner. Yeah. Yeah. Now, years later, here's me. I, the chap, in Faith, Hope and Poetry, there's a chapter on Coleridge, that's the most important thing. But in the end, I wrote like a 450-page book about that one poem and Coleridge, about the rhyme of the ancient mariner. But that all comes from my getting something from it when my mum recited it to me when I was a little kid. Mm. And the funny thing was, I, I know, when I was working on the book, I thought, well, you know, I hope, I hope my mum lives to know I've written this because mm. I dedicated it to her. Mm -hmm. But she was fine in Hale and Hearty. I finished the book 2017, it was published, you know, yep. sent the first copy to my mum. As oh, you do. Yeah, yeah. And, um, by the time I get up to see her a month later, she's read and annotated the whole thing. And she's saying, okay, on page 302. Oh, second. my goodness <laughs> me. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, so I was brought up with poetry, and I was brought up with poetry as a thing that came naturally and that you celebrated. And it was only when I went to school and learned to read that I knew it was like it looked different or it had lines or... Yes. And I always, I always loved it. I couldn't believe when I got a bit on in school later that English was a lesson. Like that was actual school time. Because for me, that's what I would have been that's doing fun. anyway. That like, was fun. How can that be part of school? That's it's like... incredible, isn't it, that God sort of births within you who you are, really. Yeah, and yeah. We've got this idea that you become a Christian and then your life starts. No, no, no. But actually, no. actually it's no, way no, he's, back he's there. Bringing, yeah, it's, it's all way back there. But of course, yeah. what happens is all those things that he's given you, hmm. every good gift, you know, can be, it can be returned to him and replenished or it can be abased, hmm. you know. Mm. There's a fabulous uh, bit in a poem by Seamus Heaney about his experiences and where he says um, he remembers himself going to confession about the things that had gone wrong in his life and how the monk made him realise that the poetry was a gift that he had to use right. Mm. Um, and he says a monk's face that had spoken years ago from behind a grill spoke again about the need and chance to salvage everything to re-envisage the zenith and glimpsed jewels of any gift mistakenly abase. What came to nothing could always be replenished. Read poems as prayers, he said. Poems as prayers, yeah. You know? mm. And like that, reading that poem of Heaney really transformed things for me. Because mm. there was a danger that I was being like my private literal, literary yeah. self over here yeah. and my theological self yeah. over here. Yeah. And maybe partly trying to, you know, I mean, you kind of, there's always a hesitation when you bring something really rich and important consciously mm. to God, because mm. you're afraid he's going to not let you have it anymore. Mm. You know, you have to give it to him. You have to give it to him. But then he gives but it back. But then he gives it way. back. Exactly. I mean, it's a bit like me with my music. You know, I, I, I don't separate when I'm yeah. rehearsing, practicing on my own, yeah. that from prayer and worship. It's, it's all yeah. the same thing. 
Okay. Uh, so talking about that, giving it back to him, I just read there's a poem in my new book which has this old idea. It talks about music and yeah. recording studios. So, so, so this is, this is um, I wrote this sequence of poems based on like just one poem, one mm. sonnet of George Herbert's. It's called Prayer and it's got like it's one sonnet, but it's got like these 26 fantastic images of yeah. what prayer is in it. So one of these phrases is, is uh, gladness of the best. Which is lovely, you know, prayer is gladness That's of the it. best. And there's no, yeah. and, but when I was figuring, like, obviously the word gladness is a key word, I was trying to sit down and write my son and thinking, like, how, how can I write about the word glad? And for me, I can't even hear the word glad without hearing the Beatles. It's like the Beatles, you know, she loves you, yeah, you know. Yeah. You know, with a love like that, you know, you should be glad. And there's something about the way they sing the word glad that is the gladdest sound I've ever heard. Mm. It's fantastic. Mm. So anyway, I wrote this poem, uh, which happens to mention Abbey Road. And by a wonderful chance, I, uh, I actually got to record this you, in Abbey Road. One time. Oh, but anyway, that's a different yeah. story. Let me read you yeah. Gladness of the Best, because mm. as a musician, yeah. you know, yeah. you'll let this one. So, if prayer itself is gladness of the best, then all the best in everything is prayer. Everything excellent from east to west, the best of sacred, best of secular. The Beatles sing, you know you should be glad. And that glad song is gladness of the best. You know you're loved. You know that can't be bad. Your once lost love is found and you are blessed. From that exultant sound in Abbey Road to jubilation in the Albert Hall, from well-honed phrases to a well-wrought ode, whatsoever things are lovely, all brought to the source of every excellence that God might give them back as sacraments. Mm. You know, but Definitely. if you're an artist, you know, yeah. or you're a musician or a poet mm. or anything, that is a discipline to give it back to God, to bring it yes. to the source, and to yes. recognise that he might say, not for now, but I'll give it to you later, later, or to let him give it. Yeah, and many times I've seen that happen in people's lives, yeah. yeah. I wanna, we're talking about different disciplines, and the collaboration seems yeah. to be something that you really love to do. I love You've it, got yeah. a very generous spirit, I know. And um, you, you work with an artist uh, yeah. some yeah, few uh, years ago. Yeah, I, work, I worked with a guy called Bruce called? Herman, who's a, yeah. well, I've worked with several artists. I worked with an English artist called Adam Bolter and with an American artist called Bruce Herman, yeah. Because I think for musicians listening, they will well, benefit yeah. greatly from this idea of expanding out what, yeah. what they do. You, you get into this sort of recording for a yeah. CD or a yeah. know, church on Sunday morning. But working with other people's visuals. Yeah, and the thing about that is you've got to let, you've got to, leave the ego at the door, you know. And, mm. But you need to do that for art anyway, you yeah, know? Yeah. And uh, there's a famous modern painter who said um, that when he starts a painting, the room is full, like Gauguin is there and Matisse is there and Picasso is there and Rembrandt is there and they're all standing around his, his blank canvas and he feels terrible, you know? And he needs to learn from them all. Yes. But he says, gradually as he paints, and the painting becomes the painting it should, everybody starts to leave, you know. Uh -huh. His grumbly uh -huh. dad leaves, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. with everybody, and he's gradually, the artist is alone in the room to paint. And then this guy telling the story said, if you're really lucky, you leave. <laughs> yeah, right. And then it's just then the you artist get it out itself. Way. You yeah. get your ego out of the way yeah. and you let it happen. Yeah. Now, you might have to wait a long time to do that where you're working solo. Yes. But you better do that straight away when you're collaborating. Yeah. Yes. And it focuses you on the work itself. Who can put the b best bit into what, where is it? You, you, you know, you're no longer thinking that it's your expression. Mm. I personally think that the whole phrase, it's often used about poetry, it's often used as creative writing classes in school as self-expression. I think that's almost the exact opposite of what it is. Of course, yourself is bound to come out in some ways, but if yourself is the subject, that's going to be very dull very quickly. That's and really only, you know, yeah. only of interest to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so the th point about collaboration is that you, you leave that side, but also, you know, you're set free from the, the terror of the, the blank piece of paper or the empty tape or the blank canvas. Because yeah. somebody's already brought something, they've already got an idea. Yeah. Like writing poems to respond to these paintings was fantastic because I could just sit and look at the painting. So just long. tell us about that, unpack that. There was, uh, he... So what happened was, um, I mean, there is, 
I'd met this guy and, and heard him speak and I really admired one of his paintings and a long, some time ago, I saw this particular painting of his father which was magnificent. I mean, it was just, a, his, it was just his father, sort of retired American guy sitting on a, on a couch, not particularly glamorous, you know, mm. lots of lines on his face. But it was clearly a painting painted with great love and there was extraordinary presence in it. And the closer you got, you could see all these different colours and yet they resolved. It was just a compelling painting. And I looked at this painting a lot and I was at a, it was at a conference and so the painter was there and I said to him, you know, I really love this painting. Mm. And I said to him, I'd really like to write a poem about this painting, but I don't think I could do it from a photo. There's something about the actual oil and paint and canvas. And he says, it's funny, so he said, well, look, sometime when you're in the States again, come to my studio and spend some time with it, you know. Um, what he didn't tell me is that part of the reason why he had that painting there was that his father had actually died in between his starting the painting and finishing uh, it. Yeah. His father had a heart attack mm -hmm. and the whole painting had become a kind of loving tribute from the son to the father and had oh. been finished kind of from memory and love, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yet it was so full of this living presence. Anyway, when I eventually, a few years later, got around to this guy's studio and he said, okay, you can come and see the painting. But I didn't realize it's, what it was waiting for me down there was like 20 other paintings of family and friends and different people, all painted, some of them like icons. And it, what had happened was that because he lost his father when he painted this painting years ago, he started, he's a, you know, he's a really well-known professional artist mm. who makes a lot of, you know, he makes a very good living mm. and paints great religious paintings and has done stuff for, you know, churches in Orvieto and cathedrals in New York. And he does portraits as well, you know, he gets paid to do portraits of the great and the good. But he suddenly thought, why, when have I ever painted, apart from my dad, when have I ever painted a portrait of somebody that I know and love intimately and, you know, have had ups and downs with? And so he just started painting family and friends. And they were all really compelling portraits. So he sits me down and says, well, you can do the poem about my dad. But by the way, there's a few others. And then he sat down and began to tell me the prayer and the theology that had gone into these paintings. Mm. And it was all about face to face. Mm. It's about having seen his father face to face and realizing that we're gonna see our father in heaven. Well, now we only know in part, we see through a glass darkly, mm. but then we will see face to face. And how the face of God is also hidden in other people. And he was trying to put that through in just likenesses, but you can't, and he wanted a poet to get that and to write poetry that would describe the painting, but would also gently bring out this theology. Yes. So I was with him on that, you know, mm -hmm. and I thought, okay, you know, like I'm gonna change my flight home and I'm gonna spend some time doing this thing. Yes. And then like, he, once he's got me good and hooked in like day two, he reveals, he says, actually the other reason why I brought you here is that I need to paint you because you're not going to get what I do until you're sitting at the other end of the canvas and you see me doing it. Because you need to write about the experience of the sitter as well as about the product. Ah, oh, how interesting. The process. And yes. so it became a whole project. And eventually we realised there was a, that just like in a movie you have music, which you kind of hear, but it sort of channels the way you see the image. Yeah. That maybe we could bring a Christian composer in here who also got this theology. Mm and they could maybe do some settings. And so we ended up with a three-way collaboration between myself, Bruce Ehrman, and this great composer, Jack Redford. Mm. And then it became, interesting, it sort of became an app. And, and Redford is a, is a well-known composer. He's a, he's a, he's a, he writes great Christian choral music, um, but he also uh, he makes his living as an orchestrator and composer for Hollywood. So like he orchestrated all the Skyfall and stuff like that. So he works pretty regularly with, you know, with sort of big names, music, yeah. big names. And naturally they, you know, the best place to record that, you know, great movie music is, is Abbey Road. So he's in and out of Abbey Road, you know, mm. as an orchestrator doing orchestrating Tom Newman's music or whatever. So he had already set some of my stuff to music and I knew he did work with Abbey Road because um, he sometimes say like, I'm at work, can you meet me at Abbey Road? Mm, let me think about that, you know. So I'd already read some of my poems yeah. from there. But when we did this project, he was so behind it and his kind of sponsors and the people that were looking at his music and just wanting to keep it going were so behind it, that they funded recording sessions at Abbey Road in which I got to read the poems for that project mm. with his music and everything. But they gave me like a whole day and we just needed the morning. 
So I had the afternoon and I, I sang some songs. I was in studio too, in the Beatles studio. Good. And I had just written, it wasn't published yet, mm. but I had literally two weeks before written that poem I read you about, yes. about um, that exultant sound in Abbey Road. Yeah. So I read this read poem that. about the Beatles recording, you know, the, yeah. um, you know, you should be glad, in the studio and into the microphone where they did it. And that was like, thank you. Very special, you know, very special. That's, that's yeah. good fun. So, so collaboration can bring you some nice surprises. Some nice well. surprises, yeah, yeah. Because we tend to think of collaboration, you know, in, in my world as uh, two songwriters working together. Yeah. But I think uh, it can be much, much bigger oh, yeah, than that, can, much yeah. broader. And in fact, sometimes I've got reservations, even the idea of two writers working together, because yeah, yeah. I think it, you, you don't always get the heart to come out. No, exactly, um, yeah. You know, the people that I and you, I know, respond to, people like Bob Dylan and... Uh, uh, Van Morrison and so yeah. on, you know, it, you get the essence of who they are. Yeah. Uh, it's not just about writing the commercial hit, but that's another, another story. I want to dig just a bit deeper about the actual writing process for yeah. you, because I know what it's like for me as a songwriter. Yeah. When you're writing a poem, does it come fully formed? Do you get an <laughs> idea? Do yeah. you chisel away? Does a, so does a poem... Oh, a sonnet, does it kind of evolve over time? Because sometimes I'm writing a song and I think, what's this really all about? Yeah, exactly. What, I what think, happens? I think if you totally know before you start exactly what the poem's going to be all about and everything about it, then it's not a poem. It's just a, it's just a memo. It's just a note to self. Mm. I always feel I've got a poem when it pushes back a little bit or it goes someplace I didn't expect. Okay. Something like yeah. So there's a kind of givenness and a, I um, get that. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's speaking I mean, back it's to you. I mean, not that I'm not being a craftsman. I mean, I want to think, yeah. obviously, if you, you can't write a sonnet by accident, you know, I mean, in the mm. sense that mm. it's got to have those five beats to the bar and it's mm. rhyming A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, you know. Now you get to think like that after a while. And sometimes, once or twice, I've had a sonnet. The sonnet I wrote about the silence on Remembrance Sunday. It happened one time I was in the house and the radio uh, was on. And it came, it was like, it, was, it wasn't Remembrance Sunday, it was Remembrance Day. So it was just like 11 o'clock on the day. And they said it's 11 o'clock. And then suddenly the radio stopped. But it was on. Uh -huh. But it was broadcasting silence. Mm -hmm. And I stood in the kitchen in silence. And it was on, there'd just been like a news programme on about the various wars that were going on and the shells that were falling. And I was thinking about those and standing in the silence. And I had a thought for a poem. I sat down and that's the fastest I've ever, I literally, almost in the two minutes that it would take of the two minutes silence, I sat down and wrote the poem. But that's rare. Usually what happens is I get a feel and a sound. There's a few words, I get a phrase. Mm. I might have a whole line that I know, or a line and a half, and I don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but I know it's got something, you know. Mm. And then, I mean, well, I, sometimes I remember having being asked just that question you've asked, but not seriously in the studio. I was asked by like a, a seven or eight year old in a class yeah. of primary schools, how do you write a poem, Sergio? Yeah. And I said, I get this little phrase and I write it down, I carry it around, and I, I said to the class, I said, look, if nobody's looking, I just, bend down to the paper I've written on and I can see the words I've written and I whisper have you got any friends <laughs> and it's like have you seriously you know I find one word summons up another word yes that the words themselves know and in fact I would say as a writer that one of the things that gives me confidence to write in spite of you know my limitations is the conviction that all the words I use are older and wiser than I am mm. you know they've been around mm. the block a few times they've got stories there and I see myself as almost the skill of it. It's more like a genial host, you know, thinking yeah. about the order to put your guests around the dinner table and you say, oh, you know, these two words haven't sat next to each other since they met at the end of a John Dunn song, 1608. I expect they've got to be catching up to do. You know, and you put them together and you see what they say and what they suggest. See, you used a lovely um, phrase. Actually, um, I think I called you once a wordsmith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Um, then your articles uh, yeah, that you write in the, the, the Church yeah, Times, I saw one where yeah. you described yourself not as a wordsmith, but as a, a word whisperer. A word whisperer, And I yeah. loved that. I thought, yeah. yes, that's what it is, it's coercing yeah. out. Something. Yeah, and it is whispering. And I, I quite often start poems, I used to start poems in the bath, but now I tend to start them when I'm out walking. I, I walk the dogs quite a lot. And, um, 
an idea or a line will come to me. And the great thing is normally when I'm out walking, nobody else around, you know, they can't think who's that idiot talking to himself, you know. Mm. So I'll actually say them out loud. I think you have to taste them on the tongue. And that's partly where the stay with the music words will come in time is I just get a sound. And sometimes, sometimes you know the feel or the sound you want before you know quite the words. And you almost mm -hmm. put in dummy words, you know. Mm. Yeah. Though, yeah. I mean, the famously dummy lines in songs, you put them in to hold that yeah. space holder and then you come back and fix it later. Mm. But occasionally you don't like, so famously in the Beatles, you know, in Hey Jude, the movement you need is on your shoulder was, I think, McCartney's dummy line, just hold it in there. And Lennon went, no, that's brilliant, keep it. <laughs> Which it is brilliant, yeah. you know, but it yeah. took somebody else to recognise. It took someone, yeah, yeah. And again, it comes back to that collaboration yeah. thing we're talking yeah. about. Other inputs, other, yeah. uh, other views. Uh, you wrote a whole collection of poems about uh, the, the seasons. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's something about rhythms, uh, the rhythm yeah, of poetry. There is, totally, and there's, yeah. there's something about the seasons, the rhythm of the seasons that, yeah. that comes and, and it's part of the human experience that I yeah. think as a, as a poet you tap into very well. Yeah, I think we need, we need the seasons. I think the heart has its own seasons as well. And I mean, obviously we've got the, the actual you know, calendar seasons of the year and those are important. Hmm. But I really love the church year, the sacred seasons. Hmm. I mean, obviously... You know, you can properly say that, that Good Friday is true every day of the year. Yes. You know, I mean, there's never a day on which Jesus hasn't stretched out his arms mm. and said, I love you this much from the cross, you know. Mm. But I need to think of a particular day once and once only, once for all that happened. Mm. And I need to keep coming back to it in different stages of my life. And I need Lent to get me in towards it. And I need that strange pause on Holy Saturday I don't want to rush to Easter Sunday all the time. I don't want to be, you know, all froth and triumph, all, all crown mm -hmm. and no cross, that's no good. But mm -hmm. equally, all cross and no crown is no good either. So the seasons help me to do that. Um, there's a great uh, Anglican um, preacher, a guy called Lancelot Andrews, who also had the honour of being the main guy for organising the translation of the King James Version of the Bible, the authorised version, because he was Dean of Westminster when they started that off. Mm. Uh, but he has a great sermon about, you know, when the church was reforming and it was trying to work out which bits of the old ways it would keep and which bits it could jettison. And some of the more hot-headed reformers were saying, well, let's trash all this Christmas and Easter and, you know, it's always true all the time. We shouldn't have these popish customs and everything. And um, Andrew said, no, 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 that wouldn't be wise. He said, time... Is we always say that time is a thief mm -hmm. and it's true that time takes everything away but what if you could make time bring it back he said wouldn't it be great if a thief had nicked something for you and you had you compel that very same thief to come around the next day and give it back to you <laughs> well that's what happens when we put a memory we do it with our birthdays when we set a day to come around again every year yeah it comes back and brings us back what we'd lost yeah. From last time. Well, there's that phrase in there that poets are guardians of memories. Yeah. Well, in fact, the, the muse, the idea of the muse, mm. there were in classical times, there were nine muses for different kinds of poetry. Mm. But the muses were called the daughters of memory. Okay. Yeah. How interesting. So, yeah. you know, yeah, um, yeah and I think, I think uh, you know, poetry is part about remembering. Of course, it's, it's easy to remember. Yeah, the sounding of the seasons, I wanted, maybe I should read you just the title Please poem do. of Sounding the Seasons. Mm which sort of sets out what I was trying to do in the whole round of the seasons. So, and it's about how we can get time back on our side, mm. but how also the whole purpose is to lift us into eternity. Mm. Um, so, sounding the seasons. Tangled in time, we go by hints and guesses, turning the wheel of each returning year. But in the midst of failures and successes, we sometimes glimpse the love that casts out fear. Sometimes the heart remembers its own reasons and beats a sanctus as we sing our story, tracing the threads of grace, sounding the seasons that lead at last through time to timeless glory. From the first yearning for a saviour's birth to the full joy of knowing sins forgiven, we start our journey here on God's good earth to catch an echo of the choirs of heaven. 
I send these out, returning what was lent, turning to praise each moment's monument. Wonderful, wonderful. Very, very good. Well, talking of time, uh, yeah. our time is ticking away. And if you're listening to this on a train or something, I don't want you to be at a, at a station sitting down listening and you're supposed to be at work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we need to move on just a little bit. And I want just to focus on your, your after prayer, your most recent yeah, yeah. collection of, of, of poems, which there's a story attached to this, isn't there? Why you wrote that particular collection. Yeah, so this collection uh, called After Prayer mm. um, is... is um, there's a poem, there's one poem by George Herbert. I love George Herbert, mm. you know, he's another long-haired, lute-playing Church of England mm. um, uh, priest, um, poet. But he wrote a poem called Prayer, which is a sonnet, but it's not even a sentence. It's just a fantastic cascade of rich images. And every one of them is a winner. Every one of them, if you spend a bit of time with it, teaches you what prayer is. And it's like a rich banquet he lays before you. In fact, that's the opening line. Prayer, the church's banquet. Mm. Angel's age. God's breath in man returning to his birth. Soul in paraphrase. Heart in pilgrimage. Just goes on like that. Mm. And some of the most famous things, like there are people who know stuff from that poem, even if they don't know the poem, like heaven in ordinary. That's mm. one of the phrases. Or mm. finishes with the words something understood. Fantastic. Radio 4. So I used to go around like leading retreats and stuff and going like, hey, this is really good, you can use this. And I would do, do a whole day with the poem, you know, and people would figure out where they are. Like, am I in a, in a lovely, easy place, you know, softness and peace, or am I struggling with God? Am I mm. engine against the almighty, mm. reverse thunder? You know, where am I and where do I need to be? And I used to say, you know, these are so good that like any one of them could be the start of a new poem. In fact, I used to quote, there's a famous Dylan interview where he was asked about what was going on in the song Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall. And the woman was saying, this is fantastic. You've got so many great things here that just, you know, you don't go anywhere. They're like, look at these lines. I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it. You know, I saw a young girl. She gave me a rainbow, you know. I saw one man wounded in love. I saw another man wounded, you know. What, what's going on there, Bob? Yeah. And he goes, well, I wrote that over the, over the days of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And like, I didn't even know if there was going to be a world next week to write songs in. I was a young man, you know, I was in my tw early 20s. I had all these songs bursting out of me and I didn't know if there'd be a world to sing them in or even time to write them. So I figured I should write down as many first lines as possible. <laughs> I mean, I did it. Yes. <laughs> so I used like. to say on these retreats, like, you could take any one of these images and it would be like the beginning of a poem or it would be the seed or the it could unfold into a poem. And then finally, one day, I finally get on a retreat myself and I'm sitting there, oh, what should I do on my retreat? Mm. And I thought, well, maybe I should take a leaf out of my own book here and do this thing. So May of last year, I, uh, I started. And gradually, I went to one after another. There's 27 images there, or 26 plus something understood. And I wrote a sonnet for each one. And as I did that, as I slowed the poem down, I realized this isn't just a random collection. He hasn't just scattered these out across his poem anyhow. I realized this is a story. You know, this is about beginning with a sense of God's sheer abundance and enjoying it and being a bit, maybe a bit over the top and, you know, a bit, super enthusiastic mm. about, and then it's about hitting the, the hard times it's mm. about going down yeah. it's about feeling the loss and alienation it's about not and it's about all that coming to a point in Christ's side piercing spear and then it's about retuning yourself after that it says um, the six days were transposing in an hour a kind of tune which when he was a musician he was like mm. George Herbert the Great sat right there you know he took about tunes oh, yeah. and chords you know he, he, like, yeah. he was totally into his music and uh, making music with us and everything. Mm. so the way out of the, the, the real depth in that is he starts to think about music and the key the transforming moment in this I might read you that sonnet is uh, the six days world transposing in an hour and the thing about transposition as you'll know is that you know you probably have this experience in churches sometimes especially when they sing hymns from old-fashioned hymn books where it's been set for treble boys, you know, and they sing it, the organist plays it, and it's just too high, yeah. it's just not in your register. You can't manage it. Mm. But if somebody kindly transposes it into another key... Yeah. Now, isn't that a brilliant image of prayer? 
if you say the six days world transpired, think about your working week and all the stuff and what's mm. on the news and you, you can't cope with it. It's not in your register. You can't, but you can't ignore it either. Mm. You don't want to seal that. You've got to come to God. And God's spirit takes that and you're able to pray through it. And prayer feels like it's been transposed into a key you can manage. Mm. Maybe it's been changed from minor to major as well. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's something going on. So you're doing the same thing. It's the same intervals. It's the same tempo. It's the same tune. But now it's something you can sing, not something that just leaves you feeling helpless. Mm. Mm. And um, so, yeah, maybe I should read you that, that poem. Um, in fact, if, if, if there's time, I'll read you the one that follows mm -hmm. it because they're linked. Mm -hmm. The Six Days World and the Tune. And the Tune one is about how actually the Tune is Christ himself. These strikes the true note in your soul. And you sort of tune up to you him. Go for it, Malcolm. So here we are. The Six Days World, transposing in an hour. 24-7 in the Six Days World. In endless cycles of unnerving news. Relentlessly, our restless hurts are hurled through empty cyberspace. Is there no muse to make of all that pain an elegy? Or in those waves of white noise to discern Christ's inner cantus firmus, that deep tone that might give rise at last to harmony? We may not seal it off or drown it out, nor close our hearts down in the hour of prayer. But listening, through dissonance and doubt, wait in the space between until we hear a change of key, a secret chord disclosed, a kind of tune, and all the world transposed. Mm -hmm. So then, mm -hmm. a kind of tune, a kind of tune, a music everywhere and nowhere, love's long lovely undersong a trace in time a grace note in the air born to us from the place where we belong on every passing breeze and in the breath of every creature all things hear and fear for faintly through our fall we too may hear the strong song of the sun that undoes death and one day we will hear it unimpaired. Mm. The joy of all the sorrowful, the song of all the saints who cry, how long, the hidden hope of all who have despaired. He sang it to his mother in the womb, mm. and now it echoes from his empty tomb. Fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful stuff, wonderful. Yeah. Malcolm, it's been a joy to well, interview it's, today. It's been fun, it's, um, I'm really glad we connected out. Yeah. Uh, if people want to know more about your your work, you you're prolific on on the internet. Yeah, I've got I've got I've got a blog, and I put most of my poems up there. And also, there's a thing you can press like to hear me read it, because a lot of people say they find yes. it really helpful to hear the poet read it. So luckily, I've got such a weird name; it comes up anyway. Uh, but it's Malcolm Guide. It's a WordPress Malcolm Guide. Yes, G U I T E. And you just and look that up, and you see, and uh, you're doing stuff around the country more and more. Yeah, in fact, yeah. internationally, you're doing things all over the place in America. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Too. It's kind of because I mean, I still, you know, the, this is the stuff of getting the poetry out there and published and getting invitations to speak is really for me. You know, I'm 62 now. It's mm. like comparatively recent. It's like the last seven or eight years. It's really mm. sort of lifted off. So my default setting, I still think of myself as sitting in my little hut at the bottom of the garden writing these poems and sending them to my mum you know yeah. so like I, I I still kind of blows my mind when I you know kind of meet up with someone and say oh you're the poet I'm going, yeah. where is Am it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and that's been a blessing and that's it's great. just been nice to feel that it's connected with that's people great. so you know a pioneer in, in poetry for, for this generation and um, we're very grateful to, to have the opportunity to listen to you. any words for encouragement for, to help people it, it perhaps there's some songwriters listening what did, did yeah. dig well, just a little I mean I do songwriting too that's and, right and, um, thing about poetry is I feel the poem's got to have all its own music whereas mm. I tend to write songs with a guitar and mm. get a bit of a melody and yeah see if it, well, I, I'd say, well, I'll tell you the one thing that some people say to me puts them off or makes it difficult or is the stop, whether it's poetry or a song. Yeah. And that's what they talk about, the blank piece of paper. Mm. They say, I'm frightened by the blank piece of paper. I don't know, what, you know where to start. And I really, I tend to say there's no such thing as a blank piece of paper. 
anybody who's an artist, whether in poetry or song, it's like you've come into a room with all your heroes and you're listening to a long conversation. You wouldn't even want to write if you hadn't already listened and heard. Mm. And what you've got to do is stay quiet in the room for a little. Okay. Wait for a break in the conversation mm. and respond. Mm. Almost the first things I've written have been responses to other poems. And now, I mean, I've written yeah. 27 sonnets yeah. in response to 14 lines. Mm. Because it was such a rich 14 lines, it got a response from me every time. Mm. So I didn't come in and thought, I, th I came in and thought, okay, a kind of tune, where's the poem in that? Transpose, where's the poem in that? Mm. Gladness of the best. Oh, it makes me think of the Beatles. You know. And you it's a response. And, re and it's a response. And I think everything is, I mean, I think, to, let's get, let's cut to the theology, the heart mm. of here. Our whole life as Christians is a response. Yeah. This is love. Not that we first love God, but that he loved us and gave his life for us. Mm. He's already, you know, like everything we do is a response to the loving grace of God. Yeah. And artistically, everything we do is a response to the beauty that's already gone before us. Beautiful, yeah. And our worship is yeah. a response yeah, because exactly. he first gave yeah. that up. Malcolm, it's been a delight. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Really enjoyed our chat. Well, thanks Thank for you. having me. It's, uh, it's been very good. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I mean, words just seem to pour out of Malcolm and he has this remarkable ability to remember words of poems, song lyrics while you're talking to him. Two core things struck me. One was when he was talking about the sonnet form, how just by limiting himself in what he writes, say in this case, 14 lines, instead of diluting it, it actually gives it more power and more punch. And I think that's something we can learn as songwriters in particular, by limiting ourselves in the subject matter, uh, something powerful can emerge. And the second is when he talked about collaboration. In his case, it was with an artist and with a composer. I think how wide the scope can be when we're working with other people um, who are contributing into what we're doing, creating something new and something fresh. Please do join us for next time. Feel free to leave a comment or to subscribe. And uh, I think we'll finish with a song which is called Wounds. My heart and soul cry out to Jesus He is the one that I adore I've tasted of his love and kindness Now I surrender with my all Cause I've seen the beauty of forgiveness At the cross where mercy is revealed Undeserved and so amazing By his wounds my brokenness is healed By his wounds my brokenness is healed My heart and soul cry out to Jesus He is the one that I adore I've tasted of his love and kindness Now I surrender with my whole Cause I've seen the beauty of forgiveness At the cross where mercy is revealed Undeserved and so amazing By his wounds 
my brokenness is healed by his wounds my brokenness is healed cause I've seen the beauty of forgiveness at the cross where mercy is revealed I'm deserved so amazing by his wounds my brokenness is healed by his wounds my brokenness is healed